We've been in a series here for a few weeks, you may recall, on sharing the gospel. And last week, this is part two of last week when I began, what next? So you've shared the gospel with someone. Perhaps they've understood it, maybe asked questions about it. And lo and behold, perhaps they even put their faith in Christ. What next? What comes next? Last week we talked about that which every believer should know. Okay, these are things These are truths. They are things that we should know. Okay, today we're going to talk about things you ought to be able to do. All right? Now, these are goals, friends. Look at your family and say, hey, have I taught my children these things? I mean, pick at it. Start in whatever order you want. Talk about your marital relationship. How can we be a little more focused so that we understand these things? Hand you out a packet. We got a new one this week. And so we're talking about things that every believer should know. It is, it is one of my goals that every one of you, if you come here faithfully, you will intersect with these truths and be challenged to develop these abilities. And the first, and perhaps foremost, is you ought to know how to pray. You know, I, 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 I said that there is a way that you should pray. There are different prayers that you will offer in your life, some of great desperation, some of heartfelt worship. But you know, there was a day that Jesus' disciples came up to him and said, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. And in doing so, He offered perhaps an outline, a guide, a model for us. Not here, say this over and over again, but things to be learned. How to pray. And when he began, he said, when you pray, say Father. When you pray, you pray to the Father. Imagine that. We do so because of our relationship with God through Christ. It's like getting into some special place, you know. I had a friend in college who worked up on the 94th floor, I think it is, in the Hancock building. And buddies of mine, we would go up there and we'd have free access because of them. That is the way prayer works. When we pray in Jesus' name, it's not the magic password to get you in. It is because we are there because of what Christ has done for us. So when you pray, say, Father... And when you pray, pray for God's glory. The requests that you bring to heaven ought to be measured with, is this for my convenience, my glory, my limited understanding of how things should work? Or is this for the glory of God? Consider these things. Perhaps consider things that your children have asked you. Mom, I want one of those. I want one of these too. Well, that's what it's like in the grocery store with little kids. I want one of them and I want one of them. And, you know, and then suddenly they don't have any room to walk in their bedroom. And it bleeds out into the living room and it's a mess. Nobody wants to live in that, right? Yeah. Pray for his glory. Hallowed be your name. Talking about the glory, the fame of God. Consider your prayer life in light of that. You know, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I had my dad's prayers memorized. I mean, there was a few additions here and there, but I knew how they started. I knew what would show up and exact words how to do it. You know, 
Don't let that happen to your kids. Don't let that happen to your friends. Oh, here it comes. It's the eight-word introduction followed by 17 things. So when you pray, pray to the Father. Pray for things that will bring glory to him. Pray according to his will. Thy will be done. Those are the prayers, by the way, that God answers. The prayers that will bring glory to him, accomplishing his will. You want to know why God said no? Well, it could very well be a not yet. But it may very well be, that ain't ever going to happen. It's not according to my will, and it's not going to bring glory to my name. God does all things for his own glory. So say, Father, hallowed be your name. Thy will be done. And my friends, for the glory of God, the will of God, pray unselfishly. You know, one of the things about this, uh, the fact that I've untied my shoes and I feel uncomfortable, (laughs) I got to tie them. You know, one thing about this prayer is it is is unselfish. You may not be familiar with what a pronoun is. (laughs) It is words like we and us and they and them. Pronouns, different kinds. Every one of these are plural, which means it's not me and I and myself. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us us. Pray unselfishly, my friends. Consider those around you after you've considered the will and the glory of God. Pray for provision. Absolutely. You know, sometimes the things we think we need are not the things we need, and God knows the things we need far before we need them. But pray for provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our daily bread. Now, I want you to notice, and you perhaps have heard this, you know, this prayer is not for cake. <laughs> it's for bread. Bread. And the word daily is, is, is the, the Greek word epiousios. Everybody say epiousios. It appears one time in the New Testament. It is a most unusual word. And it means enough for the day. It appeared in ancient uh, grocery lists, things that were enough for the day. What is it for today, my friends? Too often, we are so concerned about tomorrow, we forget about the importance of today. Give us this day our daily bread. Pray for pardon, my friends. There is sin in your life intentions and thoughts, God forbid, leading to actions, forgive us our debts, our sins, as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And lead us not into into temptation. That's protection. When I am inclined to sin, God, take away the opportunity. And when the opportunity presents itself, take away that inclination. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Everyone ought to know how to pray, to evaluate your prayers, whether they are biblical 
whether they are honoring to God or simply rote or selfish, know how to pray. Secondly, perhaps, is this. Know how to evaluate, and I'm sorry, know how to accurately interpret and imply the scriptures. Know how to accurately interpret and imply the scriptures. You have the word of God before you, but the fact is that we are careless. It is not always our fault. We live in a culture, a Christian culture, you know, that sells little signs with partial scripture verses on it. And you know what it means? It means whatever you want it to mean. Be happy. Have a happy life. You know, it always seems to be about you, whatever those verses are cherry-picked. And we look at things out of context. But there is a proper way, and you use this. If someone sends you a letter, if you open up a new book, you are using hermeneutical principles. You will look for clues as to when this book was written or to what audience it was written. If the context is the 1800s, you know that the language will be a little different. If it is a woman speaking, you might expect the thoughts to be focused as opposed to a man. Look for clues of context. The key words here, my friends... When we talk about interpretation, is we interpret the scriptures grammatically. Grammatically sounds like one of those big scary words. I had a Mrs. Roberts teach grammar in eighth grade, and she started the class the very first day and said, We're going to talk about grammar. Nobody likes grammar. And it's true, it sounds like schoolwork, doesn't it? But grammar is nothing more than just the structure of sentences. You know, if you have an adjective you want to know, an adjective is one of those words that describe things, you know. (laughs) For those of you who haven't taken six years of Greek, uh, (laughs) and maybe you forgot seventh grade grammar, but uh, the, the fact is, if you don't know what that relates to, then you'd turn it into whatever you want it to. you got to know these things. So we interpret things grammatically. And we also ought to interpret them historically. Listen to me and write this down and put it to memory and share it with someone today. The Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. When Paul wrote his letter to the church at Corinth, he wrote it to the church at Corinth. It has absolutely application for us today in oh so many ways. But not every verse was written to you. Not every promise is given to you. Some promises were specifically given to Israel. God has not promised you land. God has promised Israel land. Not all promises are to us, but the principles are there for us. As a matter of fact, when you think about such things, friends, you want to answer three questions grammatically and contextually. You have to look at the context. A context, a a text without a context is a pretext. Raise your hand if you ever heard that before. Thank you. All of you have. (laughs) 
I've said it before. Going to say it more. A text without a context is a pretext. Does the Bible teach that there is no God, yes or no? Well, Psalm 14.1 says it right there. There is no God. Uh, unfortunately, the context says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Do you see the difference that makes? Was it wrong? Did it not say there is no God? You see, I implied that's all it said. And the fact is, people who will attack the Scriptures will most certainly pick and choose little parts of Scripture to bring about these truths. You better know the context. Before you start tacking out that little verse up on your wall, make sure you know the context of it. It may not be for you, my friends. It may not be for you at all. So understand it. And when you do that, you ask three questions. Here are the three questions you ask when you look at a text, okay? How about this? What does this mean for the original hearers? What did this mean for the people at Corinth? Okay? That's your first question. Get it in its historical context. Okay? And then you answer this question. This can be a challenge. What does it mean for all believers and all times? There is what is called a universal principle involved with this. What is it? What is it? Interestingly enough, there, there are four places in the Bible where this statement uh, shows up. Okay? The just shall live by faith. Once in the Old Testament in the book of Habakkuk, three times in the New Testament, where each one of these words is clearly defined, like in Romans, we know who the just are. In Hebrews, we know what the faith is. We know what it means to have faith. But you know what? The context matters, you know? In, in, uh, in Habakkuk, he's talking about the Chaldeans who have no faith. <laughs> And the, therefore, they are not just. Uh, what they are is arrogant in this context. You know, so when this is stated, it was a condemnation type of phrase. It means something different in the New Testament. So you've got to know the context. What does it mean for the original hearers? The second question is, what does it mean for believers of all times? These, again, are universal principles. You know, those who have been justified by God will live out their life by faith. The operating principle for a believer is by faith. It is not by law. It is not by rules. It is not by whatever culture is moving in the day. It is a response of faith to what God has said. And then lastly, and this is a problem where, <coughs> where, where young believers trip up all the time is we start with the third question, which is this, what does this mean for me today? The fact of the matter is you don't possibly know what it means for you today until you've answered the first two questions. What did this mean for the original hearers? What is the universal principle that is pulled out of this? And then you can answer, what does this mean for me today? How then shall I live in light of this truth. This is steps of, these are steps of maturity, my friends, knowing how to confidently and accurately interpret the scriptures. 
Well, as we move through our list of things we ought to be able to do, and we can surely stop there, but we're going to talk about this more later and not this morning. So when we talk about learning how to interpret the scriptures, which is called hermeneutics, the science of hermeneutics is the Greek word hermeneuo, you know, I want you to consider this might be a good opportunity for me to learn how to better and more accurately interpret the scriptures. All right, moving on in the list, we ought to be able to intelligently talk about doctrine. Doctrine, yet another one of those words that only people who go to school talk about. Doctrine. You know, here's another one to throw at you. It's a $4 word. It's called systematic theology. It's not a, a semi, it's systematic, okay? You know, systematic. What does that mean? It means there's a system for understanding theology. What is theology? Think about that word for a minute here. Theology, okay? It's made up of two words. Thea, meaning uh, referencing God, theos, okay? Ology is the study of, the study of God. And basically, we can define systematic theology as answering this question, what does the Bible say about? And we can start with theology proper. What does the Bible say about God? How about bibliology? What does the Bible say about the Bible? How about anthropology? What does the Bible say about man? We could talk about harmatology. What does the Bible say about sin? What does the Bible say about the church? What does the Bible say about last things? may have skipped a, a one or two in there, you know. There's Christology and pneumatology and soteriology. I'm sorry, um, soteriology is, what does the Bible say about salvation? You know, eschatology, you may have be familiar with that one, is last things. Eschatos means last. What does the Bible say about these things? Friends, I gave you a chart. I saw some of you have it with you today. That is a map to get reading the scriptures. How will you know what the Bible says if you don't read the Bible? And if you are not faithful in reading your Bible, you will not see the connections of how things fit together. You know what? That's said in the Old Testament. I don't remember where it was, but it was talking about this same thing, about the just shall live by faith. Friends, our middle name is Bible. Let's earn the right to call ourselves the Family Bible Church by being students of the Word of God. And then here comes this statement. And I wonder uh, how familiar, I've mentioned this before, we've talked about this before, you know, um, but uh, are you able to uh, share the gospel? <laughs> Friends, I all know what you all know what the gospel is. Let's hear it. Ten words. Christ died for our sin and rose from the dead. You know it. Okay, can you explain it to someone? If you were to sit down right here, right now, would you be able to communicate in a way that they understand the significance of all of those words? Who is this Christ? He died for my sin. What do I? Why did he die for my sin? What does that mean? He died in my place or he died because I sinned, so he had to be punished? What does it mean? Can you explain it? Remember, there are four aspects that must be communicated and understood in the gospel. And the first is that you and I, we are all sinners. That's number one, okay? The wages of sin is death. Our sin has separated us from God. 
The third aspect is that Christ died for our sin. He died in our place. (coughs) And the fourth is this. We can be saved by faith. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, my friends, we are saved. Our sin is forgiven. And we need to learn more about this salvation in the God who saved us. Four things right there, my friends. Know how to share the gospel. You remember uh, two weeks ago, uh, my sermon was this, the bad news, the good news. You remember that? What's the bad news? The bad news is we're sinners, right? What's the other bad news? The bad news is we're separated from God because the wages of sin is death. What's the good news? The good news is Christ died for our sin. And just like the bad news got worse, the good news gets better. You can be saved by faith. By grace through faith, putting your trust in Jesus Christ. You haven't done it, friends. Get on that. You know, skip the rest of the sermon and start talking to God about this. If right now you know you need to put your faith in Jesus, do it right here, right now. God knows your thoughts. He knows your heart. Respond to him. Respond. Two more to go here, friends. The next one is this. Know how to evaluate a Bible translation. Lots and lots and lots of Bible translations. You know the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Aramaic and Greek. A little bit of Aramaic in there. All right. And so we have these things called translations. What I am teaching from right now is called the English Standard Version. There's an NIV, there's an NRIV, there's all sorts of initials out there. The NSAB or NASB and the KJV and the NKJV and the, there's all, how do you know what's good? You know, I mean, how do you know what's good? Well, the fact is, I think that all of them are good, but they all have a particular purpose and we should understand these things. Know this, that there are generally speaking, (coughs) three kinds of translations. Three kinds. You ready for them? The first is a literal translation. A literal translation. And a little translation, attempts are made to keep the exact words and phrases of the original. Okay? Word for word is the idea, but not the reality. There are word for word translations, but they are hard to read because other languages are different than English and they move things in different places. And sometimes you got to wait to the end of the sentence to figure out what modify. It's, it can be crazy. It can be. I strongly urge everyone to learn the languages, but if you're not going to, you better have a good translation. Okay? Now, if I'm going to study the Bible, I want a literal translation. I want as close to the original as I can get. But if I'm reading through the Bible, that can be wooden and tough to read. It's not smooth, and chapters at a time can be cumbersome. And so there is another kind of translation, and that is called a dynamic equivalent. Dynamic equivalent. The dynamic equivalent can be perhaps summed up as a thought for thought, thought for thought translation. And the dynamic equivalent attempts to keep constant historical distance with regard to history and facts, but it updates the writing style and the grammar and 
you know, the NIV is, is, is a, a certainly dynamic equivalent. And so if you want to know specifically, you know, what this word is behind the Greek, you want a literal. But if you're looking for smoothness in the grammar, if you read this at night, you lay in your bed and you're just reading through, the NIV might be a good choice for that. I mean, there are others out there just like it, you know, but they, but they have different purposes, okay? And then the, the third, which would be a free translation, okay, not, not free as in go get it and it won't cost you anything, but this can be summed up by paraphrase, okay? A paraphrase. In other words, they translate the ideas from the original text without being constrained by the original words or language. And so think of in school, maybe you read something and you were supposed to put it in your own words kind of thing and smoothen out. That's kind of what these are. And the message is the classic example of that. Um, I think uh, there's a, the Living Bible that goes way back. You know, it is, it is not a great Bible study, so to speak, uh, translation, but really smooth to read. And it feels almost not Bible because the language is very modern, you know. So Bible tends to have its, its own vocabulary, so to speak, and, and this certainly expands it. But did you know that if you have a Bible translation in front of you, you don't have to go far past the first cover, and you should be able to read about the philosophy of the translators. Did you know that? You know, a lot of people didn't know that. I, I learned it not too long ago. I mean, because, you know, you get right to Genesis, right? You know, I mean, I often say Genesis to maps, you know, because there's stuff in the back there too, including those blank pages where you can keep your own notes, right? But don't count them as Bible, all right? <laughs> <laughs> so these are things we should know. We're learning stuff here, aren't we? Good, good, good. And finally, everything that every believer should know. If you don't know these things, friends, the point is not to feel badly about yourself. Okay, I don't want anybody walking out of here, man, I'm a failure. These are goals. These are targets. These are things, to be honest with you, you will be developing for the rest of your life here. You will learn to be a better theologian. You will better understand the differences in translations, all of these things. And you may even come up with your own way to present the gospel, the ways that others have done it. But finally, the last thing you ought to know is know how to disciple a new believer. How do you help them grow? Maybe you can start with some systematic theology. Well, let's talk about the Bible I quoted what have you heard about the Bible? People hear different things about the Bible. They don't know a lot. You can introduce it as there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. Now, old doesn't mean it's all used up and no good anymore. It just means it's older. And you start from the beginning. You know, you lay it out. You take some time. Basically, you can take this sheet of paper that you have, or two of them, and use it as a guide. Go back from the beginning and start. Develop a relationship. Get them in church. Introduce them to ecclesiology, which is what does the Bible say about the church and how we are a part of it, you know? So friends, use this list as a self-evaluation tool. What have we talked about here this morning that you had absolutely no idea about? Well, Make a note. 
Go to a bookstore. Get on Amazon or CBD or Moody Publishers. <laughs> and, and, and look for a book on theology. Grudem's. It's a great big thick book. It'll cover a lot. You know, take the next six months and read through. Talk to someone about it. Find a friend and say, hey, let's sit down and talk about this stuff. See what we're learning, what's new, and what's, what stuff we already got. You know, but use it as a self-evaluation tool. Use it as a roadmap for growth. And finally, use this guide to help others grow. Kids need it. The adults need it. We all need it. Use this guide as a roadmap for growth. And use it as a guide to help others. You know, your family, your friends, your ministry, working with those kids, working with the adults, working with the ladies, or working with the guys. Whatever it is, my friends, we need to grow. Grow is normal. I have a room in my house that if you open the door and uh, kind of close it so you can see behind it, got a whole bunch of little hash marks. Start somewhere around here. And you probably already guessed what they are. You know, when we first came to Family Bible Church, my son... Well, he was about two or three or four inches uh, shorter than the rest of his friends. And I think it kind of affected him a little bit, you know. And we encouraged him. I said, man, you're going to be amazed to see how many hash marks show up here and how high they go one day. I mean, I'm not a short guy and Melanie's, you know, fairly tall for a lady. I said, I think you're going to see some growth here. And I think Alex is 6'2 now, you know, so further than we thought he'd go, you know. Growth. Growth is normal. Growth is a sign of health. We ought to be growing. I'm not just talking physically, my friends. But we ought to be growing, making progress in our faith. Learning new things, developing new abilities, sharpening that spiritual gift, knowing what we can do effectively and doing it for the kingdom of God, for the church, the building of the church, the thing that is closest to the heart of God right now is his church. Develop, grow, invest.